Chris, I hope you are well. I hope you are feeling warm. It's uncharacteristically warm in Cape Town. Clear skies for winter. Uh, means our, our, our rain is coming a bit later this, this year. How are you doing? Well, it's uncharacteristically cold or has been here. But then, you oh. know, we know the fickle behaviour of the British weather. But we are looking at a heat wave, apparently, just in time for most people heading off on holidays in search of warmer climbs. Mm-hmm. The temperature is set to climb to 30 plus and stay in the high 30s for weeks. Oh, dear. Mm. Uh, good job I'm not going anywhere, isn't it? So I shall be sizzling at home. <laughs> but uh, I, th- I think this sort of speaks to the fact that we have got very changeable weather these days. And this is almost certainly a, a combination of, of chance, but also climate effects, which unfortunately are, are a relentless thing. And we're going to probably see more departures Ooh. from what we judge to be normal. But I'm delighted to hear you have a nice clear day in Cape Town. Mm. But let's not keep our listeners waiting. Um, Nikki in Pinans, I see you, but Roy in Simestown was first. Good morning, Roy. Hello, Lester. Hello, Dr. Chris. Um, I want to ask a fairly simple question. Is uh, organic live yogurt um, equally as good as a probiotic capsule Mm. after taking um, a course of antibiotics? Hello, Roy. Well, the answer is, first of all, let's unpack this a bit. What's in live yogurt? Live yogurt contains lactobacilli. Those are the bacteria that convert various sugars in the milk and specifically soured milk which is very rich in lactic acid that's why the milk tastes sharp because the sugar lactose in milk has been converted to lactic acid lactobacilli can actually eat that and turn it into various other things which we like and they produce yogurt In a probiotic, there will be some of those, but there will be other bacteria as well. The point of probiotics, these are physically microorganisms that you consume. The people who sort of hatched this idea, and the history of this goes back actually to a Japanese scientist more than five or six decades ago. The idea is that you capture a snapshot of some of the so-called beneficial good bacteria that live in the intestine, and by packaging them up and giving them to people, you can recolonize an intestine or put back into a more natural balance of bacteria an intestine that may be denuded of its normal bacteria by doses of antibiotics because when we take antimicrobial drugs they go through us a bit like a clean sweep and they take out the bad guys that might be there but they also rob you of your good guys now most of the time those things will re-establish but sometimes you lose some bacteria or you lose the balance of bacteria more critically in the short term. And just eating live yogurt might go some of the way to restoring that, but it won't necessarily go all the way, whereas some probiotics do help to re-establish a more natural balance of bacteria while you rebuild the unique fingerprint that is your microbiome in your bowel because everyone's bowel microbiome is unique to them and if you take snapshots of what lives in us and on us you can look at the different proportions combinations of microorganisms and you can tell people apart because everyone has a a fingerprint that they hang on to across most of their lifetime so you're never going to capture that in a pill but you can get close to it and that's what Mm. the the aim of these probiotics is and in some cases we're doing believe it or not fecal transplants in america feces are now a drug because uh, there was one person who, I mean, there there is a a life-threatening condition called Clostridium difficile, which is a a certain microorganism, which when you catch this, it secretes a toxin into the gut and you can die of diarrhea. It's it's awful. And this is very common in older people given broad-spectrum antibiotics. And so what people are able to do Mm. to restore this and save lives is you give people a transplant 
of poo, and it's called a transpusion or an impusion, depending on how you put it in. <laughs> and um, there, there was one sort of cynic who said, well, how do you get these, these bacteria into the body? We do actually have to swallow them. Uh, what do you put oh. them in? Well, a crapsule, of course. And when they get into you, they recolonize your gut with the right combination of microbes. But when they were doing this in America, and this saved lives, it's a brilliant strategy. But there was one person who got a life-saving poo transplant and unfortunately gained a lot of weight in the aftermath and then discovered that their poo donor was on the large side mm. and sued oh, wow. because they caused obesity. And so now the FDA regard <laughs> crap as a drug, would you believe? Talk about the operation. Ray, what would you prefer? Would you prefer a probiotic, a tub of, your, of Bulgarian yogurt, or a pool capsule? Well, personally, I prefer the yogurt. But <laughs> regarding, the, regarding the fetal transplant, I read of this um, quite a, a while back, a couple of years back, and recommended it to a, a Facebook friend in the U.S. who was suffering from Clostridium difficile, and she eventually found a doctor. She was pretty much on her last legs. Wow. She eventually found a doctor to do the transplant, and it pretty much saved her life. So, yep, who works? Fascinating. Roy and Simon Stan, thank you so much. Nikki Pinelands, thanks so much for your patience. How are you? Uh, well, thanks. My question is, I like Uzo. Whoppa. Yeah, whoppa. But the weird thing is, it's quite clear, mm. and you add it to water, or you add water to the oozer, and it's cloudy. But if I leave the glass long enough, if I'm stupid enough not to finish it, it goes clear again. Mm. Where and why does it get cloudy, and why does it disappear? I love drink science. Mm. Yeah, me Chris? too. Bit of molecular mixology going on here. Well, look, I, I'm going to speculate because I don't know... I don't, with confidence, know the answer, but I'm going to use some physics to kind of argue my point. And if anyone knows better, do let me know. But for something to go cloudy, like milk, what that's doing, if you're seeing something that's white, where it was previously transparent, what must be happening? Well, it must be reflecting all of the different wavelengths of light back at you. So it's a bit like snow. Water is transparent, but sometimes it behaves like snow on ice and you get a white colour. Why do you get white? Because lots of tiny crystals all reflect all the different colours of light, which when you see all the colours together, look white. So something is changing in the ouzo with the water, which is reflecting light back out of the drink instead of letting the light go right through. And it's reflecting all the different colours of light and you see a white or cloudy colour. So what would be doing that? Well, in the ouzo, there will be a high proportion of alcohol, and alcohol likes oily stuff. So there's going to be oily things in there. When you mix something with water, if it's oily, it doesn't like mixing with the water. So what can happen is that the oily bits form little bubbles or droplets with the oiliness in the middle and the water-liking bits around the outside because alcohol is um, an organic molecule with a bit of the molecule that likes water and a bit that likes fat so there may well be in ouzo other oily chemicals that love the oily bit of alcohol but not the water loving bit and when you mix it with fresh water it's going to be making tiny droplets with the oily bits in the middle the water loving bits around the outside and those droplets will be the right size 
to reflect off all the different colours of light and make that reflection that you see that makes it look cloudy. But given enough time, you will eventually pull those tiny droplets apart and introduce them slowly into the water so they do dissolve, because at the end of the day, the ouzo wasn't cloudy when it was in the bottle. And there was water in there. So it must be that there's, there's something like that happening. But if anyone knows better do let us know. You can see the same sort of thing happening with mm. milk. That's why milk is, is white, because in the milk there are droplets of fat which are surrounded by other molecules that make the fat suspend in the water. And you can also see this with some detergent solutions. When you add the detergents to water, mm. the whole thing goes cloudy, exactly the same reason. So if anyone knows what the chemical is in ouzo that's doing that or what the additional components mm. are, please let us know. But I think the basic physics of what I've described is what's happening. Greek spirit is in Uzo Hoppa. Uh, yeah, here's a question uh, that has that we've held on since last week. Brian has been waiting patiently for us to ask it. He sent it a little bit late last week, so we thought we'd hold it over. He asks, who came up with the concept of measuring time with seconds, minutes, hours, etc.? How did it come about? And like most things, um, Chris, it is a human social construct no time in how we measure it is a simply a construct it doesn't actually really exist unless we want it to and we measure it out and we standardize it is that the case yeah quite right and if you think about it the way that we've measured time has changed over time because what we call units of time today, they're defined specifically uh, in terms of how long is a second, the standard measure of a second. There, there's the um, various entities around the world that have records of how we actually do this and the gold standard for, for measuring what time is, etc. But way back when, people wouldn't have had any notion of what seconds, minutes, and hours were. What would they have done? They would have looked at the year. They would have looked at seasons. They would have looked at days. They would have looked at nights, day lengths, and so on. They would have recognized how those things changed. And they would have been absolutely reliant on them for their survival. But as technology moved forward, people would have had better ways to harness those signals coming in to work out roughly what time of day it was. The ancient Greeks, thousands of years ago, had a concept of how big the world was, how far away the sun was, and therefore they knew how to use the sun to work out the time of day. People got the concept of the sun moving at a predictable rate across the sky, so you could actually use that in a sundial to predict time. So you know that happened a few thousand years ago. That would have given people a notion of, of how to divide the day up into time units, because obviously if you knew what time it was, it only meant anything if you could... Uh, actually plan events and things you knew that if the sundial said the time or the sun was here then that you probably had x amount of time left to do something and then dividing jobs up probably helped to divide time up and then it would have moved forward to the point where mechanical engineering came along and, and things like dripping water and so on people could begin to have other ways of recording the passage of time mm. and as that improved then the resolution of timekeeping would have improved. We would have, it would have been useful to divide the time of the day not just into hours like the Romans did in the 7th hour, mm. the 6th hour, the 5th hour, but to start having increments of hours, minutes, and then seconds, and then fractions of seconds. So I think as the technology's moved on, mm. it's refined how we actually record time. That's a slightly woolly answer, but, 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 but probably the most comprehensive mm. one I can offer. But, but, but also these measurements also changed. It wasn't too long ago that... The definition of what is a, a kilogram has has changed. Uh, who decides this, <laughs> yeah. of course? 
Well, until recently, Le Grand Kilo was a huge chunk of platinum iridium which was sitting in Paris. And this lump of metal, which was taken out of its box periodically, cleaned up and then put back, was the gold standard, if that's the right word, even though it's not made of gold, for what a kilo weighed. But the problem with that is that this thing can pick up dirt from the air. Every time you clean it, you can rub off some atoms and you're going to change its mass. So scientists redefined what we call a kilo to use other ways of measuring the kilo rather than just a physical blob of something. They did it via an electromagnetic method, effectively. That is not going to change, whereas rubbing some atoms off of your lump of metal will change. And so we've moved the kilo to a new definition of what is a kilo. It, it doesn't mean that you're suddenly getting bad value down the market or anything, because mm. we're talking about you know, many, many decimal points. But yes, this was uh, recently that, the, um, that, that mm. the kilo was redefined in this way to bring it into line with all of the other units that we define in a similar mm. way. If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast. Paul in Paul has an answer for you with regards to Uzo. Good morning, Paul in Paul. Hi, good morning. Chris is listening. Yeah, so it's got to do with the temperature of the water. So if you add um, room temperature water to Uzo, it won't change color. It has to be cold water. Uh, I don't know what the chemical reaction is, but I just know that that's the fact. So mm. the reason his Uzo goes clear again is obviously because the water becomes room temperature again and it goes clear mm. well, that that would um, fit yeah. wouldn't it because when when you warm yeah, something up you change the solubility and so if you've got the molecules that are in there and you put them in cold water and they don't like in inverted commas mixing with water very well then they will form that milky color but as you warm them up then what you're doing is bombarding them with more water molecules smashing into them more often and you you make it easier for them to then integrate amongst the water molecules and that will make the cloudiness go away so that does actually fit it doesn't explain what's the, what the chemical is but it does explain and support the notion of yeah. what i said was probably going on yeah i don't know what the, i think the chemical is called anacene or something and it's what you get in fennel and licorice and, mm. and aniseeds which is what they make uzo mm. from but that's all i know Paul and Chris, there's a messenger from Matt in Seapoint. Hi, Lester. I watched a clip on the reaction that takes place when Uzo gets added to water, and it's basically an emulsion that takes place. So Dr. Chris was correct. It's also referred to as the louche effect. It also occurs in absence. Absinthe. Absinthe. Sorry, yep. Says yep. Matt. Yes. Absinthe. Yes. Paul, really appreciate it. Matt, thank you so much for that. Get your questions coming in 021-446-0567 for Dr. Chris Smith. Um, Zuki, I'll get to your question now, but we first have a voice note. Let's have a listen. Good morning, Lester and Dr. Smith. I have a question for Dr. Smith. I am a cold water swimmer. In other words, I swim right through winter. My question is this, when I dive into my swimming pool, I do not feel any shock from the cold water at all. I do it every morning and every evening, and I find it a pleasant experience. 
yet, if I were to step under a shower, um, turn the cold water tap mm. on, I'd probably get such a shock and I might even, for all I know, have a heart attack. Mm. <laughs> Just joking. But anyway, so Dr. Smith, why is it for me so much easier to dive into very cold water as opposed to showering under very cold water? Mm. Thank you very much. Well, the fact that you, the individual, experience this two different circumstances with totally different outcomes despite the fact that there's a common factor which is cold water tells us that it must be psychological so probably there must be something about the fact that you're nice and warm indoors and uh you're when you step into your cold shower so probably your body is not in danger mode it's nice and warm in here and then you go under the cold water and it's a shock to your body because you're not expecting it to be cold and your body's not prepared for it but you're outside and you know you're going to dive in that pool you know it's going to be mm. cold and you're probably cold already because it's colder outside because you're saying you're doing winter swimming and it's not going to be an indoor pool i would guess and therefore your body's already put itself into cold protection mode and you're excited about getting into the water you're keyed up about jumping in you know you're going to enjoy it and therefore psychologically you are much better prepared than the shock of a cold a sudden cold shower which you weren't expecting in a warm environment so i think probably that is what's happening uh, you called it last week on something similar transference correct i don't think is i would have used that i don't think i used that term because i'm not sure what that means but um oh, that you that if you uh, the question last week was if it rains and it's a little bit cool outside, oh, I see. Um, then your body doesn't mind getting into a, a cold body of water because there's not this big transference yeah. of a, the physical environment around you is warm and you're stepping into a cold pool. But if the, the, the weather is fairly not that much of a difference from the pool water or the sea water, then, then you don't it was transference the right word. I, but I, I think I use the word adaptation. And I okay. use the example that if I had a bowl of cold water, a bowl of hot water, and then a bowl of water mm. between the two that was at intermediate temperature, and I put one hand in the cold water and one hand in the hot water for about 30 seconds and then transferred both hands simultaneously to the intermediate temperature water, on the one hand, ba boom, it would feel cold, and on the other hand, ba boom, it would feel hot. Because the hand that was in the cold is now registering water that's hotter, so it thinks hot. The hand that was in the hot now feels colder, so it thinks the water's cold. And it just goes to show that all of our senses are relative. But I think the phenomenon here is slightly different because the body has heat defense mechanisms it stops us getting too hot and stops us getting too cold because we are absolutely dependent as warm-blooded organisms on mm. a on a steady body temperature and if there are rapid or massive departures mm. from that it can be life-threatening so the body has various mm. ways and means of keeping our temperature stable it needs mm. time to prepare and it changes mm. blood flow it does various things to safeguard our temperature and mm. that can happen with preparation before a cold dip but if you have a sudden freezing cold shower the body's ill prepared and it's more of a shock well mary jane just a little bit of patience let me let me just then add on to that question of of our listener who didn't leave a name um i understand that feeling of stepping in the cold shower or cold pool and your body <gasps> hyperventilates and you start breathing uh, 
and she and she joked, look, it's so cold, like I, I feel like I'm going to get a heart attack. Um, besides ultra cold temperatures, if your body's going through that very very quick adaptation from a reasonable temperature to a cold temperature, could that actually have a physical long lasting negative physical effect that <gasps> hyperventilating as your body tries to adapt? Could you asking technically get a heart attack? Yeah, well, it does happen. And there are various Mm. people who lose their lives because of cold immersion. One of the commonest is that when people go into very cold water because, say, they fall through ice into a freezing cold lake or something, that can trigger exactly what you just did, which is a big indrawing Mm. of breath, which means they then draw in half the water around them and they drown. Mm. That's one problem. The other thing is that it does cause a massive drive of the part of your nervous system called the autonomic nervous system sympathetic branch which has the job of constricting blood vessels boosting heart rate and driving up your metabolism and there can be such a profound stimulus to that part of the nervous system it can put people into a state of of a cardiac arrhythmia you drive your heart so fast so quickly if it's not prepared for that or you have an underlying thing that might make you at high risk for that you can push the heart into Mm. a rhythm which is unstable or even no rhythm and the person can die of cardiac arrest Mm. mary jane weinberg good morning thanks so much for your patience it's Mary Ann. But Ma- Mary Ann, my apologies. Mary Ann. No worries. It's not a problem. Hello, Dr. Chris. Good morning. Can I ask you something which everyone thinks, seems to think is a very stupid question, but it's been bothering me for years, and obviously I need to get out more, but if you will just bear with me. Um, what is time? Similar to the question that Brian asked earlier, but um, I'll let you have another stab at it, Chris. Well, time is, as Lester crystallized it earlier, it's a human construct in some respects because there's there's the perception of the passing of time. We're aware as, as living beings that there is a march of time and we see this manifest in various ways around us from the, from the seconds to the minutes right through to the lifetime because we see ourselves changing, we see the world around us changing. So we're aware that, that things are moving and changing around us. But then if you delve into the, the sort of atom-based arrangement of the universe we can see that there are chemical reactions happening where one thing can turn into another and it takes time to do that there are rates at which these things happen and we have invented various ways of measuring how fast or what the rates of those things are and we have defined that as time so so the way we define time in terms of our measurements that's very much human but the fact that underpinning all of this the universe is evolving and changing and it's doing it at a certain rate and light travels at a finite speed for example in a certain medium this argues that there is a fundamental concept of time and the passage of time in the universe but our way of looking at it Mm. is just the scales that we have chosen to put on it Mm. if you were say a star and stars were alive and they were measuring time then stars live for billions of years so they would have very different length scales than we as humans which live for the blink of an eye compared to that okay let me then add on this conversation of time why was it when i took a drive with my family to say a small town like Worcester, which is like an hour away when i was six years old that trip for me took forever Mm. i don't know how i coped now i can do a hour trip and it goes quickly. It's it's this this trans this it's this concept that when you're young, time takes slow, and the older you get, the latter half of your life goes by in 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 an instant. What is our perception then of time as we get older? 
one thing I also noticed very much when I was little was when we went somewhere on a journey like the one you just described, I seemed to take forever getting there, but getting home, we were mm. home in a jiffy. And this is part of the explanation, which is that when we're young, everything is novel and your brain is processing everything at double time. It's taking enormous interest in everything because very little is familiar to us relative to when we're much more old, seasoned mm. and a veteran like you and me. And because we're devoting a lot more of our cognitive energy to what's going on around us, we tend to store lots of information about everything that's happened. And the brain's concept of time, one theory of how the brain has a concept of time, is it looks at how much information it has stored about a particular thing and says, well, I've got a very rich memory of that, so that must have taken a long time. So it changes your perception of how long things take. When you're going home, of course much less familiar to much more familiar to you now much less of a rich story of information laid down in your brain about the journey back mm. because you've seen it all before far less information mm. in the brain therefore the brain interprets that as taking mm. less less long it feels like less time has mm. passed i promise zuki i'll give her the last question of the day uh lester there's this thing that's being advertised it's called chice cream apparently it is uh, and very expensive ice cream in China that doesn't melt, even with a blowtorch <laughs> held to it. How can this be possible? Firstly, can you call it ice cream? And how can you invent something that, uh, ice cream, something that is cold that doesn't melt? Are you aware of what ice cream is? This is the first time I'm hearing of it. No. Have you seen this? You heard this? I haven't heard of this before. I'd like to see some, some information about it, and then we can perhaps speculate about the physics of it but until i know what i'm talking about I, I think i'd need to see it first to see it to believe it agreed agreed so zuki we'll 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 save that for next week there's space for one last voice note Jonas. let's go let's that have... was super interesting a poo transplant and a, a poo in a pole that is wild what an interesting learning for the day thanks so much <laughs> taking us back to our, our operation earlier the fecal transplant and probiotics it's fascinating Just, yeah well i think it's one of the most important i think that's one of the most important developments in in medical science actually in the last uh, 50 years I, i'm not joking i think our appreciation of the microbiome and the bacteria that live on us and in us was massively underappreciated for decades and we're only now beginning to see its true relevance and importance and it, and it will change our lives I, I I have the in South Africa and in other parts of the world, um, lots of indigenous knowledge. Some others would call it old wives' tales of, for example, urine. So if you were, ever were to wake up with a sty in your eye, a little bit of a bump under your eyelid, my grandmother would say, um, catch your first morning's wee and dab a, a cotton bud and then rub your eyelid. Yeah, but come I on, right? If, if, if I said I was going to pee in your eye, you'd never have a sty again in your life, <laughs> would you? I use my own pee. Preventative medicine. <laughs> Dr. Chris Smith, looking forward to next week. Thanks so much. Zuki, we'll save your question. Send it to Chris. We'll start with it next week. Chris, have a great week. And you. Bye-bye. Hey, and what is with you? Hast du auch etwas zu erzählen? Dann bist du eigentlich schon ein Podcaster oder eine Podcasterin. Du weißt es nur noch nicht. Egal, ob du dich einfach gern intensiv mit FreundInnen unterhältst, der Welt deine Leidenschaft näher bringen möchtest oder vielleicht auch dein Geschäft ausbauen willst. Das alles kann wertvoller Gesprächsstoff für einen Podcast sein. 
Mit Acast ist es kinderleicht, deine eigene Show zu starten. Produziere deinen eigenen Podcast, lass dein Publikum wachsen und verdiene auf allen Plattformen bares Geld damit. Geh einfach auf acast.com, um kostenlos durchzustarten.